Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Ahoy, Pete. I was expecting a red thing. Where's my damn red thing? Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, for episode 201, Brother, comes to you now via stabilized, high-energy signal. Pete could not be happier to be back talking Star Trek. We love all our podcast children equally, but I think we love Discovery maybe most of all. Indeed, this, the fantastic geek labor of love. I don't think I am, uh, you know, presumptuous in speaking for Matt here. And indeed, Pete, part of the reason why I think we shifted uh, recording and releasing the podcasts to Saturday is to give not only our listeners some more time to digest and hopefully share their own feedback and we have some stuff to do uh, in that venue down the line but I think also to give us the opportunity to digest this show which certainly has proven to be dense to be nimble in its storytelling and uh, to require a little extra time for uh, for introspection Absolutely. And the only rip I will make on the not Discovery, not Gene's track, I'm not watching it, I'm not paying for it, people, is this show, this episode, is a love letter to everything that has come before. And if you can't watch that and embrace it, then maybe it's time for you to head off elsewhere into the cosmos. Pete, the front row ultra platinum seat people at star trek las vegas paying their 150 dollars a day times four or whatever it was so that they could march out and not see the discovery panel as part of their thousand dollar weekend because it's gonna how dare you pay for star trek they're missing out pete but are you ready for some fleet news always well here is some fleet news before this episode leaves orbit first pete trek and trek what is trek Work on the Picard series continues, uh, eyeing a late 2019 release, at least that's what we, what we think is probable, uh, along with the Lower Decks animated series and the announcement of more short treks following season two of Discovery. Yeah, and uh, with any luck, very soon we're going to start to hear casting information past, of course, Sir Patrick Stewart. So really looking forward to both a new crew members and perhaps some returning ones indeed and i think what's interesting about the 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 mix that they need to create for that show is to not create star trek the next generation the next generation like i think that's the that's the instinct to do so but if we've learned anything from discovery what we're watching what we watched this week for discovery could have been the series pilot if you will oh man old star trek and new star trek immediately meet and we've been able to earn this pike and to a lesser degree enterprise story because the other characters were given room to grow let the picard series be the picard series not a very special episode where geordie and dr crusher come next week is that commander Riker, or shall i say captain Riker? like it, it can't be that it's funny to think that this is in practicality, like the fourth, possibly the fifth, if you wanted to break it down, pilot that Discovery has had relaunching the show. It's become so many different things. And I know, you know, you had voiced the concern, you know, is this 
Star Trek Discovery Enterprise or is this Star Trek Discovery and you watch the episode and obviously it's Star Trek Discovery with Enterprise mixed in. And I think the hands that they're in creatively are very, very wise to this. So every confidence in terms of what we're coming to in the Picard show and then another greenlit spinoff, Matt. Indeed, the Philippa Giorgio spinoff has been announced with the intelligent and amazing Bojan Kim and Erica Lippold co-show running. This is likely a 2020 release and exciting. It's an exciting prospect. And we haven't even gotten back to Empress Giorgio at this point in uh, episode 201. So Bowie and Erica uh, beyond excited to see that they will be show running that. Hey, you need writer's room help. I am available. Pete, now a bit of sad, although I dare say to those who listen to the podcast, uh, not surprising news. Star Trek Kelvin 4 has been quote unquote shelved. So not canceled, Pete, just set aside for now. Uh, Not particularly surprising to me. Star Trek Beyond, great movie, probably not profitable or certainly not profitable in the time frame they were looking for and uh i guess that's the way the that's the way the the ball bounces as i voiced on twitter i'm still hopeful this is going to get done it's a negotiations snafu between chris pine and chris hemsworth in returning uh bottom line speaks the loudest yes beyond did not make money there's also creative studio accounting behind that i'm pretty sure they made at least a dollar mat otherwise why the hell did they do it really confident this will eventually get done well pete certainly not canceled is star trek discovery so with that let's head into our mission briefing Over images of the Cassini space probe, Matt, Michael Burnham tells us about the final frontier. She recounts the story of the Akam Abatha tribe that in antiquity in Africa, the tale of a girl who created the Milky Way, a message in the bottle for those whose hearts are open enough to receive it. And then with images of Sarek and Amanda in flashback, taking on Michael, who had been orphaned by the unthinkable, beautiful slow motion shots of red petals or leaves falling there on Vulcan. Amanda blesses her all her life. It is a lovely moment, kind of a reintroduction to what we know about uh, about Michael Burnham. It's a, a new introduction in terms of seeing her come to her new home. Uh, also, Pete, I have to notice here, uh, of course, of course, a Vulcan home has the kind of sparse utilitarianism of an Ikea, but the, <laughs> the wood grain of a people who want to naturally live uh, around and in and with natural resources so you know of course those shelves have only what you need on them and no more of course it's a bit sparse um aside from the yesteryear episode of uh of the animated series i don't know that we've spent this much time in a vulcan home and it felt like a vulcan home 
I mean, maybe Enterprise in uh, into Paul's uh, time back on Vulcan. But there's a boy upstairs, Matt. We see him. And you wonder immediately, all right, are we going to get Spock out of focus this entire episode? Because they kind of blur the lens a little bit as he's peeking over the railing. Um, they ask Michael if she would like to meet their son. Uh, and of course, we are looking forward to that moment. The family goes upstairs uh, again in this wonderfully colorful yet sterile space. Uh have to notice that 3D chess set that sits off to the side. Sarek tells Spock that uh, the two children are to be friends, and young Spock first seems to ignore her, creates a hollow projection of a dragon lizard thing, as one does. Uh, it disappears. She reaches out to shake hands. Pete, he reaches up to close the door. Oh, it's a heartbreaking opening here. Something we kind of had to expect, though. Uh, and into the present uh, with all sorts of energy on the bridge. Saru wants to know from Ops uh, why the Enterprise won't respond. Chaos on the bridge, Pete. Kind of like yes. behind the scenes. Um, the, true, the crew ultimately tries to establish contact with Moore's code. Nice to see some good old-fashioned things can stick around. Uh, Detmer also notes that the Enterprise is a beauty. We agree, Pete. Burnham telling us that life support on the Enterprise is operative and the entire complement of 203 crew alive. Uh, we also are told eventually once contact is established by Morse code, I guess, that uh, Captain Pike wants to come over with a science officer and an engineer. Uh, Saru and Burnham prepare to receive him, although Sarek notes that he had not planned on seeing Spock so soon. Uh, so amidst all this kind of, you know, button pushing and sound effects and it's the Enterprise, there's nonetheless that, uh, that character moment there for Sarek. We head to the credits. Uh, Wilson Cruz and Anson Mount are credited here as cast members. Uh, new for both, that is to say. Uh, Shazad Latif, who we know will show up in the show at some point is now no longer credited as a cast member and pete to our surprise berg and harberts retain their executive producer credit at least for now with that hand holding uh shape there in the credits which i think was made specially for them since they're such pals to the end script written by ted sullivan and gretchen j berg and aaron harberts and directed by alex kurtzman the now although not when it was made but the now star trek dojo chief Yes, and amid new images in the credit sequence, most notably the Red Angel, uh, we have the classic style chair put together there from the original series. We have a black badge ominously appear. There's an Idic symbol that appears on the Vulcan salute hand, which is a holdover from season one. And we also have the transporter pad where some uh, Starfleet badges dematerialize. So was really hoping they changed up the credit sequence for season two, given some of the iconography from season one, not obviously immediately uh, necessary. So uh, big ups for doing that. 
I know that as a production, uh, a big deal was made of not only having high-end credits, but having kind of old-fashioned credits. You know, nowadays, Pete, you throw up a title card, you do the credits over the the, the first act. Um, but they wanted to kind of have that big uh, that big credit sequence. I know, too, there also were... Uh, the mandate came, you know, there must be 35 names in the credits and things of that sort, which also, <laughs> I, I'm not off much by the number, by the way. You know, it's more than six cast members and a couple of producers, writer, writer cards, you know, if it's multiple writers, whatever, writer card, director card, it's a ton of names. Um, but it does make sense, especially you pointed out to me, Pete, it would not be appropriate to have things like a Batleth in this season, which is not about interacting with the Klingons every episode. Well, but. Yet, at least. And there were some things that were germane to season one in that credit sequence. And obviously the larger things here wouldn't rule out too, Matt, at some point, you know, eagle eye, maybe they change. We come back to the episode with an exterior shot of the Enterprise in the distance. Saru and Burnham seen through the windows of the Discovery as they walk to the transporter room. In there, Pete, there's a man with a visor. It's visor 1.0. Right. Oh man, Pete, is it just the eyes? Is the thing on the head too? It's so ancient. It's it's glorious. Um, there's also talk of Saru's sister, Pete, a fine story. Yes, go back and watch that short trek if you haven't. Uh, they were just made available on uh, Thursday in the UK. So if you haven't had an opportunity to check those out, they're actually on the uh, Netflix um, menu under other clips under trailers so you can check that out there and of course fantastic geek has all four of those short treks ready for you to listen to and for those of us in the united states who uh, had subscriptions to get uh short treks to those of you out there in star trek netflix world uh you're welcome <laughs> but uh saru's senses are up and uh he senses that burnham's endocrine system is working overtime yes she claims that it's just the general stress of the situation sister ship in need in distress you know captain coming over to brief them etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, which I don't think we buy completely, uh, because let's not forget, amidst all the bleeps and the bloops and the hails and the not hails and the Morse code, we know that she knows Pike is coming over with his science officer, or at least a science officer, the assumption being the senior science officer on board, that of Spock. Little does she know, Pete. But that, of course, is feeding the tension there. Uh, then, great shot here, we get the the kind of I don't want to say gratuitous, but we get the fan frenzy, you know, kind of close up of the visor, shift the focus to Burnham. Everybody beams in. Nice shot in motion there as the three people beam in. Then close up on non-pointy ears, then shift the focus to Burnham. Pete Spock's not on board. He's not. And we'll learn more about that later. But Pike awkwardly tries to make the handshake there and then talks about his time back in wait, Mojave. Wait, wait, Pete, Pete, what does he do after the handshake? He talks? He talks. Captain Pike in five words says more <laughs> from Anson Mount than he said in 13, 10 episodes of Inhumans. He did it, Pete. He spoke. More than other versions of Captain Pike as well. Beep. 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 
So uh, learned back in Mojave, get a little bit of background here. I'm going to learn a lot more about uh, Captain Pike this season, that the best way to get into a cold stream was to jump right in. And he's here at Starfleet's order to take command of Discovery under Regulation 19, Section C. You know that one, right, Matt? Fire up encyclopedia 2.0 is that even still a thing is it all memory <laughs> alpha now i don't even know pete but uh yes there's three contingents by which a captain in his position might take over command of another ship pete all three of them are being uh, implemented here because this is one heck of a threat imminent threat lives of federation citizens in danger and no equal or higher ranking officers present to mitigate such threat so with that, Matt, they start the walk and talk through the uh, discovery. Commander Non, we learned her name a little bit later, sees where the Federation puts its pennies. Do not covet thy neighbor's starship, Commander. Uh, first of all, for anybody who's freaking out, I'm sure she's speaking metaphorically. There is no money in the future. Everything's great. Everything's great. How are you? <laughs> Um, there is, of course, reference that though the Discovery might be this cutting-edge, beautiful ship, at least the Enterprise crew is sporting those new, colorful uniforms. Uh, I must mention, too, Pete, this particular, not just this scene, but this moment where Nan is looking up. That shot from the trailer uh, from the summer is something that I had screenshotted uh, on July, 20, July 20th. I uh, screenshotted that from the trailer their their sense of wonder my sense of anticipation and it was just this great moment all these months later to be like you know to see what comes before those moments and after those moments and uh you know here we are the 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 story underway and indeed pete what is this signal let's flip it over to you and science officer Connolly, who i'm sure is going to be a beloved presence for many episodes to come I would say not beloved here. Definitely the tension right away with the not Spock science officer, almost like some kind of sibling rivalry with someone who's not quite a sibling. But he reveals that over the last 24 hours, Federation sensors have picked up seven red bursts across more than 30,000 light years. Perfect synchronization, just long enough to get a reading and then they disappeared. Uh, except Four, one. And Saru says that their synchronization all but rules out some kind of naturally occurring phenomenon. So the question is, are they a signal? That's what Pike would call it. But Connolly says that they don't appear to be moons, stars, or any other type of planetoid. But every time they attempt to engage with it, the Enterprise computers went haywire and Burnham says, well, that's like a compass at the North Pole, which Pike loves, thinking of all the syllables that they murdered trying to create that. But Connolly says that metaphors are simplistic, but apparently at uh, the Federation, or shall I say Starfleet Academy, he didn't do so good in the English because Burnham points out that uh, that's a simile, big guy. Know your figurative language. Absolutely. Pete, this is why he's a hard sciences guy and not, I don't know, not wearing the blue shirt to be a counselor or something like that. Even have a uh, good bedside manner like Dr. Boyce over there. 
but uh finally there's this moment here after we're told of course the uh the signal is so strong that it has thrown computers into chaos uh pike says that he's glad to meet burnham and notes that they have a mutual acquaintance and i think burnham is kind of quick to wave him off like yes yes i know it's spock we both know spock pete pike quick to note here that it's best to keep expectations low i had to wonder pete is this some sort of not jab but i wonder how many times have have fans been told you know don't expect the sun and the moon and the stars with this show expect it to be a star trek show not you know not star trek of your youth that kind of thing in fact serious question pete didn't kurtzman say a line like that at at new york comic-con uh, I'm not remembering a Kurtzman line. I'm remembering a certain gathering at Star Trek New York. Yes, that is what it is. Nicholas Meyer was the one that told the audience there, lower your expectations. In fairness, the question was not a question. A fan said, don't screw this up. Um, I'm also mentally realizing pete i did not see mr meyer's name at least in the opening credits here i didn't get to watch the closing credits because before them there was a preview which i did not watch but pete let's talk about something that's even more important than all of this there's a quick exterior shot of the turbolift shaft and i have many things to say about that later from an engineering point of view i have concerns i have questions i have geeking <laughs> but i guess Is it exterior or interior well exterior of the turbo lift i guess interior into the turbo lift shafts the the canyon like turbo lift shafts uh, i say this a bit tongue-in-cheek because uh, look i could care less what the turbo lift shafts are really like at least that's what i'm saying here pete i'm also waiting for the <laughs> star trek discovery technical manual that i can read every day much as i still have portions of the next gen technical manual memorized but i digress pete let's talk about an actual story here is this a space-time fluctuation? That's a delicious little thing there. Um, but, Pete, are you ready for Saru to easily transfer command? Well, I mean, is this easy? There are new procedures standard in place that Pike has missed out on for some unknown reason as of yet. Uh, indeed, Saru explaining that they must uh, transfer command with DNA authentication witnessed by the bridge crew. So they go to the bridge where Tilly's words overfloweth, uh, talking about his pinky being misplaced uh, on the scanner. Uh, Not the most authoritative finger for a captain. Well, Pete, that's why, you know what, that's why Chris Pike, he's a cool guy. All his, he can lead with a thumbs up. He can lead with a pointy finger. Hey, you get to work. Somebody needs to start a Twitter account for Pike's pinky. And it Note should only self. communicate in uh, beeps or two beeps. <laughs> or taps, I guess. <laughs> um, ultimately, we get Pike's file coming up. I, if I read it correctly, which is, say, metaphorically read it, simile, metaphor, I don't know, Pete. Um, but I think that it was oops-a-daisy accidental that it was uh, up on the screen there. But yes. we see his commendations, his childhood asthma, his F in astrophysics. Did you catch, Pete, that his file reads that he is the successor, successor to Robert April? We knew that, but this is the first official on-screen confirmation of Robert April commanding the Enterprise, if you exclude the sometimes excluded animated series. I believe we had the shout out when Saru looked up the top 
um, Starfleet captains in season one. He being a captain, yes, a captain yes. of the Enterprise, no. Okay, uh, so there you go. I, I did not make that connection there. Tilly's fears of breaking a, a Starfleet captain aside here, we have the DNA authentication in front of the entire bridge crew. Uh, this, of course, after uh, Linus sneezed all over Connolly in the turbo lift, which, given what occurs later on, just adds insult to injury. Pike knows that everyone might have doubts about him, but he's not the other guy. He's not Lorca. He does note that the last time there was an energy distortion investigated by Starfleet, it started a war. So what is this, Pete? Greeting a declaration of, of malice. The bottom line is they're going to go to that red dot and they're going to warp there. They are. Uh, whatever it is, they're going to find out together. So we ask Saru for permission, gets in that chair, and we hit it. The act, of course, does not end quite yet. We get the camera lingering on the Enterprise for a moment, teasing us, Pete. It tasks us. <laughs> um, but after the act break, we are in warp. We hear the Cassilian opera. We get the closest close-up on Stamets' eye, and he's watching the old, what, eye projection video of the dead and never coming back Colber. Uh, and Stamets is, of course, actually still in engineering. Tilly notes that she has been assigned as part of her uh, advanced training, uh, I, I guess, you know, coursework stuff to be in charge of uh, handing out rooms. And uh, but Stamets interrupts Pete. Tell us what he has to say about Cassilian Opera. Yeah, the message from the late Dr. Kolber here trying to get um, Stamets to reconsider his position on Cassilian Opera. He's got tickets here. Uh, he knows that uh, Paul Stamets only goes to Cassilian Opera uh, for him, but he so loves it when he does things just for him. And though this is the only bit of Dr. Culber we get in this episode with the wonderful Wilson Cruz being called out as a regular, only look forward to more of these or other types of appearances throughout this season. Well, more on that in our theories segment later on. Tilly notes that with all the room shuffling here, Stamets now no longer has a lab. This is because engineering is being put back into a normal workspace. Um, but Tilly is going to stick him into a new lab. She shuffled around that darn logic sciences person. That's when we are told, Pete, no, no. Stamets actually is going to head to the Vulcan Science Academy. Uh, he relates his life thus far to the Cassilian opera prima donna who trains her whole life only to die on her last note. He has kind of reached the top here, the, at least the top that he cares to explore with the spore drive and uh, thus is headed off ship. He's going to finish that wee pike mission though, before leaving. Yeah, that prevents him from uh, heading to Vulcan just yet, but the transfer was approved by Starfleet. The spore drive inactive for now and Tilly wonders why he would leave when he's had the mycelial network by the tail. That's why they need to put his equipment where Brianna from Logic Sciences has too much room. But uh, he sees Hugh everywhere, and this is a painful reminder for him. But Tilly asks him if maybe this could be 
good haunted. That's Pete because she doesn't want him to go. And uh, he notes that he has no doubt that she will be a great captain. But in the meanwhile, say fewer things. Uh, with that, we get a flashback of sorts to Amanda reading Alice's Adventures in Wonderland while adult Burnham reads. Uh, this is all intercut with young Burnham being read too. So kind of, it, it's very kind of time fluid. Young Spock looks on. Uh, in the present day, uh, Sarek visits her cabin. It's it's candle lit. These are hollow candles, of course, Pete, and to be very careful. Okay. <laughs> this is, Let's not. Don't knock them over. That's right. Don't knock them over. Um, Sarek wonders about the odd timing of this signal. Uh, it's not a Klingon threat, Pete. How's how do we know that? Because he's reached out to old High Chancellor Laurel, who doesn't appear in this episode, but we will see Mary Chifo again, um, and that they are both aware and investigating these signals, but they have no explanation either. So why isn't Spock here? Turns out it's been years since they both spoke to Spock. Uh, Burnham wonders what Sarek wanted Spock to learn from her. The answer is empathy. Sarek admits that Spock never fully accepted her, though he may have for a time. Uh, what is it that she won't say about their relationship, about her relationship with her brother? Well, Sarek sticks a big old story pin in that to talk about it another day suggesting that she focus on the problem ahead, not behind. Time for a bridge crew roll call. Matt, are you ready? Fire away. Clockwise from science, we've got Michael Burnham. We've got Evan Connolly for now. We've got, again, Reese, Kayla Detmer, Joanne Awushikun, Lieutenant Commander Arium, but wait, hey, uh, you're, skip your ranks, they don't matter, and she apparently gives her rank because it matters. We'll come back to that a little bit. Ronald Altman, Bryce, and Saru, just Saru. <laughs> uh, Pike gives them all tasks, including Pete, something that we should all live in our lives. Detmer, fly good. <laughs> it was a great line, and... This was pointed out, and they've actually put this since on social media, and if there's a clip to watch from this episode that spoils nothing but excites people, I have a buddy. We have a buddy, Matt, who uh, from time to time checks in on our CBS account and checks in on Star Trek Discovery, and I said, uh, here, watch this clip, so he's aware of this. Um, yeah, Reese charging phaser cannons, everybody else working on scans, and... This is done in a way to further that anti-Lorca sentiment. Uh, he wants to know these people, Pike does. He wants to know who he's facing this threat with. And as we go to yellow alert and uh, warp into the threat, 700 meters off their bow, there's no red thing. Yes, Pike leading with the... Don't call me Mr. Captain Pike. Mr. Captain Pike is my dad, man. <laughs> respect me and I'll respect you. Um, but you're right, Pete. More importantly, there's not a darn red thing. Uh, Saru IDs an interstellar asteroid, but the rock has atmosphere. Uh, there's also a deep gravity well going on there. Pictures are taken. Uh, and now the asteroid gets headed to a nearby pulsar because the Discovery has interacted with it and its gravity well, much as two magnets might. Uh, that's a metaphor, Pete. 
and um they also see that uh that there's a, another starfleet ship there crash on the asteroid uh pete their scans can't quite make anything out who can help us I believe Mr. Saru has the ocular capacity to be able to see that. So what the telescopic cameras there to aid in the repair of hull uh, problems can't, he can. And he makes out the registry NCC 815. Yes, Pete, the USS Hiawatha. They thought that it had been lost. It's a medical frigate assumed destroyed. Uh, to get to it, they can't beam down, nor can they take a shuttle. Uh, Saru notes the extreme danger, as does Burnham, but Pike silences them. He, of course, welcomes dissenting opinions, uh, but he's not going to sit this one out. You know, he being a captain that sat out the war. It's a great moment, Matt, and we just had the... The warm, touchy-feely Mr. Captain Pike, and now it's Dad Captain Pike coming down on them so that uh, Burnham has to reassert that there's not a person on this bridge whose names he just learned that wouldn't leave a Starfleet brother or sister behind. Uh, so the plan... The plan goes by fast and furious, Pete. They're not. They're still not going to beam in. They're still not going to shuttle in. They're going to uh, use some of that advanced tech that we're about to see in a in a landmark special effects sequence in a little bit. First, though, Burnham is pulled aside by Tilly. There's something mycelial going on over there, so please get a little rock sample and come on back. Spoiler alert, Pete. They're going to get more than a little rock sample. But first, Pike. Burnham, Connolly, and Nan go to the shuttle bay in EV suits. It's your standard four of us walk in formation in shiny outfits towards the camera and as the camera <laughs> swoops around kind of scene. Uh, then, Pete, did you know that that seal is not just paint? That takes you down to the landing pods. Yeah, uh, we do set up a time frame over the course of these sequences. First, we're told that in five hours, the collision course is going to result in this asteroid being incinerated by the pulsar. And then Burnham makes it clear they have less than two hours to fly down, set up pattern enhancers, and beam back any survivors. Uh, Connolly uh, voices some concern that they might rematerialize in a billion pieces, but he doesn't want out, Matt, because he loves roller coasters and has no fear of being overconfident and going ahead of them and being blindsided by debris and brutally murdered and never mentioned again in this episode. Don't tell this guy how to act, dad or mom. By the way, Pete, just to check in thus far in this episode, we have a uh, unique energy disturbance and people being launched in EV suits. Shades of episode 101, and I'm not being critical, it's just, again, there's kind of this repilotization that occurs. You know, this is the fourth or fifth pilot, quote-unquote, uh, as you mentioned before, and I just think it's interesting that they're playing in a somewhat, somewhat very similar, if that can be a thing, uh, a somewhat very similar space here. If season three does not open, a not yet uh, ordered season three, which better happen, by the way, if that doesn't open with some unknown 
energy transmission that the crew needs to investigate. I, I think, you know, we, we might have to complain. They've, they've done it so well to start the first two seasons. Pete, you mentioned the kind of countdown of danger that uh, has been mentioned. Good news, though, up on the bridge, uh, Detmer notes to Awokashan, it looks like the rocks out there, they can explode. Saru's threat ganglia emerge. Uh, another bridge person stares at it for a moment, and Saru asks, are you surprised? <laughs> Reminding us that we can still have some funnies in Star Trek, particularly with the war being over, etc., yeah, the thing that we get, despite the gravity, pun intended, of this episode is a real sense of humor where we didn't initially have as much in the pilot and, and really in that first season. Uh, but these uh, pods that they're heading out in, these landing pods that they're preparing to launch, they were test piloted by Burnham nine Gs for 11 minutes uh, though Connolly thinks that might be a stretch and he doesn't like her humor all the more for him to exit this story. Yes. Yeah, kind of vague shades of Connolly explaining there. Like you think you could actually do that stuff. Uh, Pete, I'm not saying he's sexist. I'm just saying he might secretly be sexist. Uh, but they launched the pods. His field isn't wide or his field is too wide rather. Uh, and, I mean, kudos on the shot choice there where there's all this junk flying by so fast that you can't notice it, but they choose the right camera angle. So as Connolly pontificates, uh, we see that rock coming in for, I was going to say three seconds. It's probably not even that long, but it's long enough for us to go, oh no, oh no. And then boom, one less Connolly in the universe. Pod three is down, but not before he uh, science mansplained that his uh, partcation Academy oh. roommate would give him guff and he would tell her to relax. Connolly's now in a permanent state of relaxation. Do you know, Pete, how much my heart sang hearing the Cation race mentioned? Uh, barely on screen, but always... Uh, I don't know. There's always a certain uh, appreciation I had, even though I'm not really a cat person. Big fan of the Cajun people. Uh, I know you got your classic Trek. You got your Star... Or pardon me. You got your animated series. You got your Star Trek 4. You got your Star Trek Kelvin with Kirk and two Cajun gals. Um, and Pete, how open-minded. There's there's boy and girl female roommates uh, in the, the 23rd century. And uh, all's well. Uh, except for Connolly, who's now dead. Back to the pressing drama here, uh, splashed with some debris as well was Pike's pod. And we see the hairline crack begin to form as structural integrity has been compromised. Yes. Add to that the fact that his helmet won't close. It, he's a gentleman of a certain age, Pete. These things happen. So is it adios to Pike as well? Well, Burnham is ready to catch him after he gets launched. Uh, and uh, there'll be some help there once she launches. Discovery's going to have to take over her thruster pack. So Discovery has him. Right, ladies? There is, of course, the frantic look between Awokashan and Detmer. Uh, yes, yes, we have it. So they're going to fire on three. One, two. Pike's helmet closes. And three. Burnham catches Pike. Detmer auto-fires just in the nick of time. Pete, no more shall die today. The sequence to me was so reminiscent of the 2009 Star Trek film that, of course, the uh, reboot in the Kelvin universe that you mentioned before. 
and uh, when they drop from the uh, shuttlecraft onto the mining platform. Um, and I, I thought a, a rather nice callback. I mean, Matt, a decade on now. Uh, also a bit similar to the Kirk and Khan EV suit thing from uh, yes. Star Trek Into Darkness. Also, also a bit reminiscent of the deleted opening scene to Star Trek Generations where Kirk EV suit parachutes. Orbital parachute. skydiving. Yes. So for those who feel such suits steal your childhood, Pete, if we've learned anything in the last year, it's that space shows and space movies can retroactively steal your childhood, <laughs> much like much like Marty McFly going back into the past can lead to things that get you erased. It erases parts of your metaphorical heart. Or is it a simile heart? I don't even know, Pete. But we have an act break. We come back. Non and Pike and Burnham repel down as lousy CG characters on the side of the Hiawatha. However, Pete, in a little bit, and we're going to go slightly out of order here in a little bit, when Pike's helmet pulls back from his head, the CG is great. So you know what? It's a net win. Do you think it was a different um, effects company? Um, that's a really good question because I don't know much about special effects, but I know that they tend to parcel out. If jobs are going to be parceled out, they get parceled out by type of thing. So, like, your company, Pete, is going to do all the spaceship stuff, and then, you know, so that way there can be continuity and skills there and this and that the other, and I'll do other stuff. I'll do the phaser fire, and I'll do the whatever. So maybe it was. I, I guess I kind of feel like it's 2019. You should get convincing CG characters shot from behind wearing robot suits. Like, that should be more convincing than, look, it's TV's Anson Mount with computer-generated helmet over his head, which now is going to go back into the collar of the suit. Um, bodies from behind should look better than things covering a face, but whatever. You know what, Pete? We all have deadlines. I know this episode, they started to shoot it. Old Alex Kurtzman did, uh, I think, back in March. Or maybe he was announced in March, began filming April 16th. There's a reason, Pete, why they shot it then. We're only seeing it now. they got to work on this stuff, and it's all good. They make it repelled down, uh, repelling down the side of the Hiawatha. The ship is in tatters. There's a target incoming. Is this curtains for our heroes, Pete? No, it's just the kids. <laughs> Indeed, a drone made of Starfleet parts. I have to admit, Pete, the size of the drone and how small it is did not fully register until I saw this portion for the third time, and uh, it only aired two days ago, so you've, you know what I've been doing with my time. But uh, genuine gentle finger wag that the scale of the thing did not really come across on first or second viewing. Well, I think it's actually changed from trailers as well. It seemed larger and in different spots uh, when we saw some of that early footage. And that, again, is what happens throughout this process. You talk about the lead time. So much was made of the change from season one to season two to go anamorphic. I was watching the red carpet premiere the other night. They streamed it on Facebook because for some reason, the, um, the Star Trek PR people who are different, of course, than the highly busy and thoughtful creatives sought to not invite us though. We're just down the road in New Jersey when it was in New York. And you've been in touch with them multiple times. Pete, I think they just don't like uh, smart podcast people. Uh, but do do tell us more about this anamorphic thing because uh, 
I like me aspect ratios and lenses and whatnot. I was not aware of this discussion, nor was I aware of a, of a change. Yeah, the changeover for season two to make this more cinematic, to make it bigger, bigger aspect ratio on your TV. And the result comes across on screen. You know, I did not have uh, qualms like you with the repelling sequence. But as we move through the emergency containment here and the the kids ahead of Pike in the lead with uh, non in the back here, we determine that this is a breathable atmosphere and they remove their helmets. That they do. And uh, again, the helmet coming off pretty seamless CG. Uh, they are warned by the uh, yet unnamed, yet un- unseen Commander Jet Reno to avoid the laser tripwire. And uh, then they enter, Pete, what may be a redress of the Shenzo ready room. That's not because they're reusing sets, okay? That's because what Starfleet does is take a modular deck-by-deck design and apply them to different ship types. You see what they did there? I do, and we see what she's done, Reno, uh, not being a uh, medical officer with several of the injured from the Hiawatha in various tubes and stasis. There's some really great CG as far as uh, skeletons and everything else. But we get the reveal of Tignataro's uh, Reno as an engineering officer. Yes, and I I love her performance. I love the kind of deadpan comedy to it. I know Tignataro is known as a comedian. <laughs> as a comedian, I don't think this is a comic role. If anything, it's kind of like laughing in the face of persistent death for the last ten months and eleven days. Um, so it's just kind of like a, a a war weariness, a world weariness that I just love. Let's bring this person back. Oh wait a minute, Pete. What if she came back in a post season two short track? Catching up with Reno or something like that. The title, call me. I have more titles. Um, <laughs> she's told that the war is over via an armistice. The great deadpan line there. Well, no one's uh, speaking Klingon, so I guess I know who won. She wanted to shake hands, Matt. She really did, but she was up to her elbows in Tellarite brains there from poor Grek and his head wound. Yes, Grek that head wound keeps on opening up actually pete she can shake hands because the blood which i looked it up pete it's similar to uh horseshoe crab blood in its bloody bloodness uh and you can uh, shake you're hands referring to hemorrhythm uh yeah absolutely and pete we <laughs> all know what that is and what it does so we don't need to bore uh, bore the audience and linger on it we all know about hemorrhythm um Bottom line, though, uh, she has also piggybacked a heart from a dead body to a still living person. She's just an engineer, though, Pete. It's all just parts. Can Discovery get them out of there? Hey, Pete, we have a new mini mission for the next 10 minutes. Yes, and uh, with the recap of everything that she's missed, uh, the armistice with the guys who drink blood wine, unbelievable at that, but Valentine whose heart is disembodied from the rest of his body because he's wait, taken... Wait, wait, wait. Bro- Valentine has a broken heart? <laughs> this <laughs> yes. just occurred to me here. Oh, my goodness. P- please continue. You keep the heart of a bullion uh, ticking after it takes a lick in Matt. Um, and she's kept them all alive here 
with the kids helping to handle the weight. Um, and now, like you said, we're going to get that mission. They were on the way to Starbase 36. She was getting the war wounded handled, but this batch too critical to move. And, uh, just like Pike would have done, they do this. Uh, the ship rumbles. They've been rocking and rolling for hours. She's not in a position to know why, but the asteroid is hurling towards a pulsar. What a relief. She thought they were going to die. Again, love that deadpan delivery there from Tignataro. Um, how's everybody going to get out? Well, they brought transporter enhancers, so though they couldn't beam in, now they can beam out. That's legit, Pete. That's happened in other Star Treks. Uh, they'll be able to beam out six at a time. They go to the uh, Hiawatha transporter room. Pete, that's the return of your old-fashioned lateral, lateral vector technology and and is in no way a redress of the Senjo <laughs> transporter room. What happens is Starfleet creates modular uh, transporter rooms to put throughout different ship designs. It all makes a whole lot of sense. Um, but back on the Discovery, asteroid bits are coming fast and furious, dinging up the ship. Pete, it's a new counting clock. We better hurry up and beam these people out. Yes, I love that Pike uses the same prop, apparently, from the Death Star in 1977 to prop open um, the uh, the door. But uh, the pattern enhancers set up. We suddenly have wounded being moved around, and the Discovery has transporter signal. And uh, sure enough, they're getting out six at a time, uh, but there's a power blowout ahead of the final transport, so Burnham steps off the pad. She uh, looks to bleep the bloops and to reconnect the extension cords such as they are. Uh, she does that. She's harkened back to the pad as, uh, as Pike sees it starting to, to fire up. But uh, she misses the transport. There's an explosion. She's blown out of the room. The door gets sealed. So she starts to run as the ship really starts to buckle. Uh, and then there's an explosion, which Pete, I thought was an act break, but I don't think it's an act break. Instead, we have Burnham awakening in the rubble. Yes, with shrapnel to her right leg. Um, and the, the flames all around really eerie the way it was staged, uh, on top of the idea of something appearing to her. She seems to see the red angel, though. I don't know that she, I don't know that she has called it the red angel yet. I know from the previews, she has not. From the previews, there'll be discussion about the Red Angel in the future uh, and all that. But um, Says the guy that doesn't watch the previews. Well, I, I, Pete, back in back in July, okay, it was, it was meager offerings in the world of Star Trek, and I had to watch that You hear what times. he's doing, listeners? He's rationalizing. Well, now, Pete, I can – now that I live in the, 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 the Federation land of plenty, I can I – can, Watch my episode, not watch previews, let each episode unfold. It's magic and it's grandeur uh, as intended. But anyhow, she sees the Red Angel, or is it Pike who comes through the mist there to save her? Uh, she oh, grabs Pike's the Red Angel. Pike is the Red Angel. We solved it. We solved it, Pete. Um, she grabs that, that blue black crystal, uh, but it does not transport with her. More on that in a little bit. 
Papici's made it back. We get an act break there. Tilly sees her in sick bay. Burnham has a broken femur, you know, fixed in two hours or less, Pete. It's the 23rd century. It's the 2250s, man. Come on. Uh, Tilly uh, is told that the sample from the asteroid was ready to go, but it couldn't transport over. Pete, it's like it shouldn't exist. It's impossible. But Tilly has 67 minutes left to get some kind of sample. Yes, not entirely comprised of baryonic matter, whatever the heck that is. So the discovery could be touching something impossible and 100% efficient energy source. If only, Matt, there had been a short trek that also explained the dilithium problems of the age to Tilly that people could go back and watch. <laughs> Well, perhaps perhaps that's where we're headed, Pete, is a, a, a mixture of the two. Uh, on the bridge, Pike says that his mission has ended and he yields the chair to Saru. Pete, you see what a kind guy he is, empowering others, etc. Um, then Saru uh, is ready to order them out. I first thought, Pete, that it looked like the rock was chasing them. Turns out it's all part of the uh, the attempt to uh, to capture a piece of the asteroid, though Saru, uh, is it Saru or Pike that notes this feels bad? It's Pike. Well, it does feel bad. They pump the brakes. A huge piece lands in the shuttle bay, all hardly much less worse for wear. It's the power of math, people. It is, and uh, looked like it did far bit of damage to our shuttle bay. It did. Uh, and let me just say now, so I don't need to say it later, Pete, uh, I don't know that it's a I don't know that it's a net win to have a shuttle bay that is only uh, kept pressurized by force field and not having a manual door. I'd like to point out that uh, future iterations of Starfleet ships all have shuttle bay doors. Well, in Lorca's ready room here, Matt, you know, the one that doesn't have chairs, uh, we have a meeting between Burnham and Pike and that fortune from the fortune cookies, you know, from uh, Mirror Universe, Lorca's family business. Um, well, Mirror Lorca said it. I assume he was, I assume it was true in this universe too. I assume he was, he was speaking Are there as fortune cookies in the Mirror Universe. This is a question we really need answered. <laughs> Um, well, Pete, are they me... all like bad fortunes? <laughs> you, you will be stabbed in bed by somebody who has a tattooed dagger on their thigh. <laughs> uh, Pike is now in a, a standard uniform because he's going to be sticking around. Pete, totally shocked. What with Anson Mount, now a member of the cast, at least for this season. Uh, but on his way out of there, he puts down the fortune cookie. We see the fortune. Not every cage is a prison, nor every loss eternal. Pete, I'm going to put forth a theory that maybe those words are going to come back to affect Pike in life. They are. And Anson Mount talked on the red carpet the other night that we know the third act, Pike, in the chair. We know the first act, Pike, from the cage, which was the pilot, and then the menagerie, the kind of repurposed uh, pilot footage that became part of Kirk and later Spock's uh, story. And what the goal is, is to make 
with the act two pike that he is playing, that loss at the end seemed more like a win. Pete, during the Burnham uh, Pike walk and talk, we get a little bit more info here on uh, the fact that the Enterprise was on its five-year mission, missed the war, and uh, that took a toll on everyone. The implication being that the crew missed out on this important war. I don't want to quite say the glory of war. I don't think that's Starfleet on the surface, although I think maybe that's implied that there was this most desperate hour and they were way off somewhere else exploring uh, the central mission of Starfleet, but not doing the peacekeeping and protection that uh, that is part of the job. And it's an effective explanation of why we only saw the Enterprise at the tail end of season one. The last thing that we saw a great way to zing us for season two and to make it believable why they never got involved. I'll add too that I think the notion of the five-year mission from classic Trek, I think to a certain degree was just like a thing that was said, like, yeah, that's what it is. It's a five-year mission because we say so. And it's kind of like out there. Um, the, the notion of it being this deep space, uh so quasi solo uh situation space being so so big as opposed to like you know next generation where warp to earth warp to vulcan warp warp to the klingon homeworld etc um it really was in the uh was that star trek in the darkness or was that the uh was that star trek 2009 where it's like oh man the five-year mission this notion of it being this more solitary more independent kind of out there beyond the edges kind of kind of mission well, they discuss it being in the middle of it in beyond of the toll, but talk uh, in into darkness that the anticipation we're going to get that deep space uncharted, all of that. And what Pike speaks to here is the guilt that they have by being unable to participate in that. So for me, I don't think that I don't think that the Kelvin movies nor this is necessarily recasting the original uh, concept of that five-year mission. I just think it's clarified. It was clarified for me, clarified in the Kelvin movies, and here that clarification is carried over. Of course, Kurtzman, you know, uh, a, a factor in both. Um, but it's like the answer that fits perfectly. So, A, you and I are not anti-Kelvin, and B, if it works, it works. Um they, of course, look out at the Enterprise in reflection, and we want to see the Enterprise, but the show is saying, no, not even eat your vegetables, just no, stick with the Discovery story. You too can look at the reflection, but stick with the characters here. <laughs> uh, Pike notes that there was a change in Spock, a question in him, and uh, Spock is off the Enterprise, out using his months and months of leave time. Pike kind of vague on the exact amount, probably because the story wants to keep things vague at this time. It does. It does beg the question, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, this is not the first time we've seen Spock go off in search of an answer. Yeah, Pete, but but the beard, doesn't that somehow take away all our childhoods or, or, or take away our masculinity or take away our Gillette razors? Doesn't, it, doesn't that do something? Isn't that of mortal threat to us all? Or the long hair, which is from my childhood. Uh, uh, true. 
Pete, I was flipping I'm speaking, through. of course, to the Colin R uh, uh, pursuit that Spock uh, leaves on Vulcan from Star Trek The Motion Picture. Uh, I was flipping through the uh, Star Trek chronology second edition just a couple days ago and uh, saw in the forward section, you know, kind of their uh, their then current citation of, you know, we don't count the animated series because Gene said so and we must all genuflect, but we're going to count yesteryear, blah, blah, blah. Then it says, but ultimately it is up to each viewer to decide what counts and what isn't. Like it's a little reminder of there is not some from on high where Gene Roddenberry came down the mountain low with these three or two scrolls or tablets saying this is what Star Trek is and this is what it's not. It's a mixture of all these writers and all these shows and all these actors across, you know, 55 years. I mean, my goodness, Pete, it's like 1964 or so, 1964, 1965, when Gene Roddenberry is kicking around captain names and Robert April is on the list and we don't get that. 100% official, again, asterisk with the animated series. We won't get that uh, official for, you know, 60, pardon me, 54 or 55 years later. Like, let's all be flexible, man. I love the transfer shot once uh, Burnham makes it clear to Pike that she wants to go over to Enterprise to see Spock's quarters, uh, looking out at the Enterprise, and then boom, she's in front of his room with the red paneled hallways. Yes, Pete, love that hard cut there. I thought that she was about to enter the bridge, uh, but of course she's going to enter uh, Spock's home from the past. It's kind of like our home, you know, home base enterprise, that kind of thing. But, um, but lots of familiar things visible in that room. There are, we have the bell frame. We have the 3d chess, on uh, second viewing, there's the uh, the stringed instrument. Um, but Pete, there's also another familiar thing, which is familiar from earlier in the episode. Which is the flashback to Spock as a child and what he was working on. Uh, that in addition to uh, the, um, the background from his quarters, uh, kind of where there's this shelving his blue uniform. We haven't earned him yet in uniform. Uh, fingers crossed that's coming later on. But as Burnham takes it all in, she's uh, in the present as well as the past. She is, and she starts to access that familiar uh, computer. Thank goodness, Pete, we saw it at the beginning of the episode, so we know what it is, too. Uh, it plays his most recent personal log, that, of course, of Lieutenant Spock. Um, and he's talking about nightmares. His nightmares have returned. A vision has returned. And uh, where it must take him is where he must go. But he has left a clue on this audio file. And she starts to pull it out of this uh, computer, a holographic representation of it. And we see uh, what appear to be galaxies or stars connected with the red spots. Brother. Pete, we have an incoming threat analysis. This one comes from the past. Young Spock, current Spock, 20-something Spock. Is he a threat to us? The distance between not only Burnham and Spock, but now pointed out Sarek and Spock, we know that they have a 
rocky relationship moving forward. Um, the Babel episode in the original series, the drama between father and son throughout all of Star Trek. But now to find out that Burnham has had similar trouble with him, something that had been unexplored to this point as the sister, uh, foster sister of Spock. It is an interesting uh, recasting I don't mean that kind of in the Ethan Peck sense, but it's an interesting recasting of the character in terms of any time that Spock has been curmudgeonly in the Star Trek that we've seen so far, it's been kind of like, oh, our curmudgeonly friend. Um, but now you see kind of the flip side of what it's like to deal with him, whether it's as a tempestuous child or somebody uh, in youth here. Um the funny thing is it all fits. Like it does not feel like, Oh, why is friend Spock from classic Trek or, you know, old guiding Spock from Star Trek 2009. That feels as, as in concert with his youth as it could possibly be, despite the fact that they're, that they're kind of coming at life from different perspectives. Maybe Pete is just the shift from, you know, the, the haughtiness of youth into, uh, you know, into the more mature years but Pete not making it to his mature years is going to be Connolly. Is his sin a lack of empathy? You know, Matt, it's almost as if this episode wanted to present an overconfident white male who knows everything and can tell everybody else about it and is suddenly silenced and never mentioned again. Is news of the field being too wide pete is that fake news it's not because it was too wide and in actuality you're gone <laughs> um i'll also mention at least in universe or, or the greater focus in universe pike is the one telling him to listen to burnham like there, it, it's not just like it's not just a professional uh, uh disagreement from burnham to Connolly. it's not just uh you know who's right who's wrong obviously science wise she's right he's dead but you know it's pike saying that and he's he's essentially science guy explaining his captain too as to why his captain is wrong so pete you can't listen while talking that was uh what Connolly found out very quickly wrong all the way around and uh not so dearly departed Well, Pete, let's switch over now to long-range sensors, some theories getting picked up there. First one, Pete, will Spock's journey be merely about the red lights or maybe one of personal or cultural discovery? I mean, how could it not be that fully formed idea? What's in front of us in Star Trek, the literal and the figurative, has always in its 50-plus years been what it's all about. It's funny um, I'm a member of a number of Star Trek Facebook groups, and somebody had put up an article uh, that mentioned President Trump's name. And some commenter had the audacity to say, Star Trek shouldn't have politics in it, and was absolutely not shouted down. You know, it wasn't violent, but just have you not paid attention to what Star Trek has ever done here with people with 
white and black on one side of their face and black and white on the other side of their face in the midst of the civil right movement. Uh, that it's always been about the discussion of our world viewed through this hopeful, optimistic future that we're all going to get through it. Uh, then there's the episode, the Omega glory where uh, Kirk literally comes across alternate universe Yangs, Yankees and cons communists uh, and then reads the constitution to them at the end. Then there is a private little war, which is about Vietnam. So yeah, that person. Let's not forget when Spock and Kirk fought alongside Abraham Lincoln, Matt. <laughs> um, yeah, similar. I saw somebody on Twitter that was like people who complain about uh, the, the quote unquote shoehorning of minority characters into Star Trek mustn't have seen Star Trek before things of that sort. Um, what's scary, I mean, just to stick with this for 30 more seconds, Pete, what's scary is that there are people who have spent decades watching Star Trek and see it about a, see Star Trek about a white guy who likes to have sex with a lot of different women and shoot things and, there's an aspect to that with Kirk and it's fun and it's sixties and seventies and eighties and Riker is kind of a reimagining of that, but like they didn't learn anything along the way. All they had was just the, the, the hot dog and none of the, none of the broccoli. But it's amazing. Those fans of what a former cop turned screenwriter, uh, deemed a wagon train to the stars don't seem to understand the differences pointed out in us make us stronger. Uh, these are the people, though, that don't buy this TV show because it siphons away from the money they have to get into the gold press latinum seats at the front of their conventions. Pete, I can't pay for Star Trek Discovery because I'm collecting cases of Deep Space Nine wine. Okay. P.S. Deep Space Nine wine or beer. One of those two is a real thing. Pete, back to the show here. All right, let me get it out now. The turbo lift shaft shot. Is the discovery bigger <laughs> on the inside than it is on the outside? Is everything all wrong? Where's my technical manual? Why won't they make a technical manual as a part of a conspiracy? It was, it's not part of a conspiracy. Uh, it was unclear on a number of viewings. Is it spilling outside of itself? I'm not sure. Was this part of the uh, rescue operation for Enterprise? Uh, tracks being laid? Do the do the tracks move? I've always imagined the, the turbo lift, and I know there's a number of technical manuals out there. You know, we have the sets, and, you know, you grow up watching Star Trek and then realize they're filming this with a camera. It's not a documentary. And uh, that they move in any direction and go anywhere. It's like a Wonka Vader, essentially. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I got from the next generation technical manual there's vertical shafts there's horizontal shafts which you know get you there exactly as long as your conversation needs to be you know and, and that's been uh that's been noted you know that like to go from the bridge to engineering and there's handles and there's a little light on the side that yeah. indicates that you're moving past things a bit more importantly pete now that i've gotten my little engineering fit out of the way so the enterprise sat out the war because the five-year mission was very far away one do i have that correct two is it story baloney to bring back quote unquote the old pre-war starfleet mentality uh or do you find it completely believable 
this all works and it's explained within the story, Burnham says that they wouldn't have made it back in time and that Spock posed the question, uh, if they got back, what if there was nothing to return to? Last one from me, Pete. Dead Culber, Stamets on the way out, but magic mycelial asteroid procured. Will the network return a Culber to us? Can I greet your theory with a theory of my own? Uh, yes, all greetings, languages, and theories are welcome. <laughs> so it's wild, it's out there, and I just want to propose it. I have no inside knowledge. So Culber. Not about this. Not about this. Uh, Kolber was taken from us. We know of Stamets' connection to the network. Kolber has communicated to him when he was in the network. We were teased so efficiently by Wilson Cruz at New York Comic Con. All he was allowed to say, we will find Kolber where we left him, which is apparently not just in uh, hollow videos, hollow messages to Stamets, I have to imagine. Can I propose this? Could Culber be the Red Angel? Um, that would certainly put him front and center of... It would put him front and center for where the story is headed. Uh, we spent a lot of time last season talking about what is the flavor of the writing room, you know, how how do secrets work, how do twists work, things of that sort. Um, to think that the whole first half of last season, the Klingon War, was also secret um, mirror universe stuff, uh, in that we had mirror Lorca, etc. Uh, I think that we could be on this red uh, red dot mission. Um, collecting points to to you know get to the, the the level up boss of Culber, if you will. Um, so I like that as a theory. Let me propose it this way, and you can go back and listen to my track record. Episode five is the first time we meet Shazad Latif's human character. That, of course, Ash Tyler. And in that podcast episode, I floated the theory for the first time is. He, Valk. And of course, that wound up being the thing. So let's think about what the Red Angel, the Red Dot mystery did in this episode. It brought them to a place where they were able to rescue a crashed medical frigate's remaining personnel, including an engineer in Jet Reno who was able to save all of these lives. And we've now added her to the party potentially for later on. So what if this mystery is about getting discovery to all these different points where they need to right these wrongs, save these situations, the bringing of Burnham and Spock together, the idea that this has occurred to Spock throughout his life. And what if it is Culber manipulating all of these situations? I mean, that would, again, that would suit the short-term and long-term momentum desires etc of the season um that would that that would make a lot of sense i think that's a theory to watch 
Sticking with Shazabati for a moment, uh, and I know I kind of alluded to this back when we were talking about the credits, but I was surprised to not see him in the credits. I know that a lot of the Marvel shows that we podcast, there will be people who are credited in the credit sequence, kind of get that pride of place, um, but only in episodes that they appear in. Um, I wonder if that will be the case with him. Uh, assuming it's not, because I've only ever seen that with Marvel. Um then it represents a shift here because he was in just about every episode. Um, Jason Isaacs was not in every episode, but credited right. for every episode in the first season. Um, it makes me prognosticate into the future. How many episodes will we see Ash Tyler in? Uh, I will point out that as much as Mary uh, Chifo is a part of the Star Trek family and on stage with everybody else, she spent the entire first season as a guest, uh, as a guest star not even uh, build first at the end of the uh, in the episode 115. Um, so essentially you have two guest actors here. Now, of course, you can snap them up for, you know, hey, we want you for these four episodes in a row or, you know, four out of the next six, whatever it might be. You can work that out scheduling-wise. But I kind of, I guess I would have expected Mary Chifo to get promoted to full cast member, and I'm surprised that Shazad Latif, even at the very least, you know, if it's like a money thing where hey, dude, we're only going to need you for, you know, five out of the 14. So can we adjust your per episode rate here as opposed to cutting you from the cast? No, he's no longer part of the continuing cast. We know they're there. We don't know to the extent they are. I think, too, it's the old Hollywood who gets the honorary credit, who doesn't. Jason Isaacs gets it when he's not in an episode um, and here they don't they don't appear but uh let's go even further with michelle yo we know she's going to be in this season we know she's a big star who's getting her own tv show uh doesn't appear uh in the credits but is going to eventually but not on the isaac's level so i think more than not it's like an agent thing in terms of who's going to get what and then who plays along with it well, I'll point out with Michelle Yeoh, she had the unique distinction, uh, and not just unique for uh, Star Trek Discovery, but I feel like unique in terms of TV credit in general, where she got the credit sequence guest starring credit, uh, mm -hmm. which I think, believe me, she's earned as somebody who's an international icon. Um, but as you say, Pete, I think that at the end of the day, if it's like, no, I feel really strongly about being named here and not there, it's like, all right, well... Let's horse trade here. You want a little less money to get your name in the thing. You know, it, it's all of those kind of behind the scenes things, which which are interesting, Pete, but probably not as interesting as your next theory. Three more from me. One, I talked about my positive theory of the Red Angel. Let's talk about the negative. When Burnham sees that vision and the arms outstretch, if you look really quickly the way they're going, you almost see horns at the top of the head is the angel benevolent or are they going to tilt us and subvert expectations is this malice i think at least in your promotional stuff to be out there calling it an angel you know there's a there's a connotation there for uh the positive i think even if the red angel ends up being this completely positive thing and it really is the ghost of culber coming along to right wrongs and make people happy and put bread in hungry tummies and things like that um 
if I'm now involved in the production and all right, we need blurry image and whether it's computer generated or person in a suit that you're going to shoot out of focus, whatever it is, somebody along the way has to go, Hey, I know the red angel is good, but let's throw some horns on there. They'll get really blurry. And then really intelligent people that uh, CBS uh, PR doesn't particularly care for. They'll discuss it with other <laughs> intelligent people. And uh, the intelligentsia of star Trek can have something to mull over while, you know, while other fans are like pew pew phaser fights, you know, which is all fun too. But Pete, it's something for us, you, me, the fantastic audience, all the smart folk. We need to update our iTunes uh, description, the uh, Star Trek Discovery PR people's non-podcast of choice. Um, the signal's timing, Matt, right after the Klingon war is questioned. Coincidence? I would say no. Now, of course, on the one hand, we're in this blank slate in terms of you know the next nine years there's not a whole lot of star trek history uh certainly hasn't been covered by shows so they have that area to play in the flip side is this you know is it the borg invasion no is it the gorn invasion that never occurs no is it the romulans returning no um so there's a little bit of straight jacketing in terms of the story in general um certainly it's not this galactic thing um that that we would never speak about again so i think there there is there is the idea that that it's probably more benevolent than not people think back to hey you remember remember back then where there was all those lights that ended up being you know whatever starfleet investigated it now it's classified or ended up being this really happy hippie dippy thing not you know another war right behind it but maybe there's a signal of good job you got through the war let's all come together Uniforms have always been a big thing throughout Star Trek history. Uh, the Kelvin timeline movies rebooted those old TV uniforms so magnificently. A little less so with Beyond. I didn't really like the the way they they uh, monochromed it out and took away the the Starfleet Delta from the uh, pattern of the uniforms, but. That aside, how are you so, going to know if the toys are from in the darkness <laughs> or beyond if you don't change them, Pete? Uh, meanwhile, in another galaxy, uh, C3PO has a red arm, so you need to get the new toy, which is different than the old toy. You do. So, Enterprise got the new uniforms, Discovery got the new tech. Are we on a collision course to Discovery new uniforms, end of season two into season three? um end of season two and season three maybe not i mean we know this is where the uniforms end up asterisk i know it's a slightly i mean first of all i'm not concerned at all of william shatner wore a you know a, a wool sweater uh and now this is not wool and it's got arm braiding and this and that the other like at this point who cares but um are we headed towards everybody wearing that color scheme yes i just don't know I mean, if we think back for example to the um to the cage and where that is in the chronology you know they had kind of the older more monochrome style i mean i know the color wasn't the same as discovery's wearing but if you want to say well everybody was kind of wearing sweaters of the same color and now on discovery and in starfleet everybody wears jumpsuits of the same color and those are meant to be the same um but classic track colors are coming i don't know that it needs to be right this season or next season with that let's go to hailing frequencies hailing frequencies open sir 
Pete, first up, the first hail is from our pal Fred in the Netherlands. Hello, Matt and Pete. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some short feedback on Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 1. So this was very nice to see Star Trek back again on the big screen. Of course, we got used to it a little bit by the short tracks. Some people had some comments about the short tracks that they didn't connect too well to Season 2. Well, that didn't disturb me too much because I thought, well, we just get into the atmosphere of Star Trek Discovery again. But there were some people on the internet that were complaining that, for instance, the Calypso episode was not connected to anything. Well, that's probably the, the worst one in the sense of connecting. Perhaps we will hear or learn something about the thousand years of discovery in space, perhaps even in an alternative timeline or whatever. And the other ones um, I found very nice. So Harry Mudd is, has a connection in the past and possibly even into the future. I liked it to learn something about Saru's background, although some people were saying, so where is the hunted Kelpian species? Well, perhaps they made a deal with their predators to live uh, more at ease and not all the time in anxiety. Some people even suggested that the Kelpian meat tastes better when they are not slaughtered, when they are anxious. So that was a nice idea. I liked the Theru episode on a personal basis extra because it was filmed at Scarborough, so near Toronto, Bluffs Park and Beach, where I was in August 2017 because some scenes of Orphan Black were filmed there. And also Killjoys and The Expanse have some scenes that are filmed there. So I was standing at some spots where The Brightest Star was filmed just probably six or nine months after I was there at that same spot. So that gave an extra connection for me, of course. And the first short track with Tilly was nice as well. In the first episode here of Discovery, I had the idea that Commander Nan, who accompanied Pike, was also Xayian, just like Poe in the first Star Trek short track. I did a comparison of their facial ridges, and if you take away Poe's bluish makeup, it really looks the same. But uh, if you look at the memory alpha, it proves to be that she is Bazian which is a race that needs this device, and you see it in Nan, in the corners of her mouth, because they live on a planet with very toxic fumes, and they're used to that, so they need these apparatus for breathing normal air. But if you do a comparison of Poe and Nan, you could make that mistake. So first I thought, okay, this is the connection between the short track number one with Tilly and, uh, and this. What about the episode? In the beginning, I found the episode going very slow-paced, and then it became, as soon as they used these landing pods, it became so high-paced that I and my wife even couldn't follow. Problem was a little bit that they speak so fast that you have difficulties to follow as a not-native speaker, and then you put on the uh, subtitles, but because they say so many stuff in such a short time that even the subtitles can't keep up and then you land up in 
reading only half sentences. I really have to rewatch it again to uh, to more get an idea about the whole um, the whole episode. There was some funny stuff in it. I think Tilly is a little bit over the top in her ADHD kind of attitude. After a whole season of discovery, she should be more at ease. Well, she was Captain Killy, and she dealt with the Empress of the alternative universe. So it's not it's not matching for me. Very funny was, of course, the Linus snot sequence um, I posted on the Facebook page. And I really wonder if they try to put this kind of humor into Star Trek, uh, whether they try to do a little bit Orville-like things. And so in that sense that the audience that goes for the Orville humor is also attracted to the new Star Trek season. So that was all shortly for now. Thanks so much that you will put your recording and editing a little later so that your international listeners also can contribute to this podcast. Great. All the best, Fred. Pete, some great feedback there from Fred. Uh, Fred, having spent some time near the filming site of the Saru short trek, is Fred Kelpian. It comes as no surprise to this uh, podcaster that Fred has been to Kaminar. Uh, Fred is actually what the Kelpian fear, but he doesn't eat them. He beams them up and gets them uh, to better places. So we'll <laughs> we'll learn that later on. Fred also noting that uh, Commander Nan is a Barzan. This is a callback to the Next Generation episode, The Price, where the Barzan premiere Bavani is auctioning off a wormhole that ultimately is not stable. Pete, that is also the episode where the two uh, Ferengi get caught on the wrong side of the uh, of the wermhole, later to intersect with the uh, USS Voyager. And lastly, Pete, The Price is also the episode that had the iconic Troy and Crusher are going to do gymnastics in a mirror that shows <laughs> off their bodies, which is actually not a gymnastics thing at all. It's just a mirror that they stuck in a hallway. And I think we all... Might have enjoyed it as uh, teenage boys back then, but now we look back and say maybe not the finest moment of Star Trek. No. Tilly to ADHD? Um, no, I'm thinking the, the, the word I'm cribbing from the TV Guide review, adorkable. <laughs> uh, Pete, also Fred, uh, noting, again, we have our slightly later release for the podcast. We do love feedback. Keep it coming on in. Pete, here's a tweet from our pal Bob Keeley, that's at R. Keeley on Twitter, who says, finally watched this week's Discovery. Pete, he was having some trouble with CBS All Access working properly. Oh, perish the thought. I know. Uh, but Bob, he's a positive guy, Pete. He says, wow, they reset the tone but kept the excitement. Love the interaction with Pike. What a great start to season two. I completely agree with everything that Bob ever says. <laughs> that's that's usually a uh, that's usually uh, a good thing to live by pete any feedback on your end from facebook matt robert t frost writes in discovery 201 brother where to start the yays or the nays let's go with the nays so we can finish on a positive note two bits to pick discovery is supposed to be a prequel 
show. But I also realized that the show is trying to balance itself between the 1960s original and audience expectations in 2019. That said, are the Discovery's spacesuits based on Iron Man tech? Uh, <laughs> it took me out of the show more so on the second watch when the helmet assembled itself. And then again at the end of the episode when the giant electromagnet assembles itself. For me, it felt too high tech. I was expecting something closer to the original series. Heck, they still had physical manual suits slash helmets in the Star Trek movies. And even the great Montgomery Scott only had transparent aluminum to work with when not stranded back on 20th century Earth. Secondly, I felt let down by the interior of Spock's room on board the Enterprise. It was too big and roomy. I feel that the crew quarters set could have been one of the easiest sets to match up with the original series. The Yays. What a fantastic start to season two. Very action-packed, and I'm really liking Anson Mount's portrayal of Captain Pike. Familial, easy, personable, and maybe a red herring about his personnel file. I'm also liking the further developing relationship between Tilly and Stamets, incandescent versus weary. I thought Commander Jet Reno was fantastic, dry, 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 sarcastic humor. I hope we get to see more of her, but I'm not going to hold my breath. Lastly, I love the Easter egg in Spock's room, the Vulcan wedding bells hanging on the wall from the original series, Amok Time. Until episode 202, your friend, Bob. I think that when it comes to some of the technological stuff, you know, Alex Kurtzman just laid it out at New York Comic Con saying there's going to be some visual reimagining that's not to take any of the stories away, but if they need to reimagine, they're going to reimagine. I, I hear the concern there that it doesn't match up perfectly. Um, and I think, you know, they, they made a decision and they went with it, whether it's box quarters or the helmet, things like that. Um, box quarters also may be a redress of a Shenzo set. I don't mean to, you know, turn that into a joke, but it did kind of look vaguely similar to like the, uh, the um, dining room that the Empress had, which probably was a Shenzo reset, uh, reuse, etc. But I think it's just one of those things where they've made the choice and they're going to go with it. Pete, you ready for a couple more tweets here? Absolutely. We have one from at uh, ML Huber writes, uh, who says, I'm listening to the Star Trek Titan audiobook, and Admiral Riker's unfortunate assistant is Cation. That's enough, Pete, to have me check that out. Uh, we have a tweet from M. Dooley. That's at art underscore M. Dooley 78. This was a great start to the new season. It met all my expectations and then some. Uh, and then two tweets here from J.T. Atkins at J.T.A. is me. Just wow isn't very elegant, but just wow. Soundtrack trivia. Loved the uh, addition of Bear McCreary BSG-esque Middle Eastern instruments in the first half hour. So say we all. Uh, elsewise, great story, action, character. Really pulled out all the stops on this one. They did so much stuff blowing up and so much action and great characters and story development. Oh, and, and I did. Uh, and did I mention fun? Is this really TV? 
That's what they want you asking. They want movie quality <laughs> delivered each week. Now, is it the next week yet? Hashtag Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, to think we're going to do this 14 times, 13 more times this season, Matt, hopefully in consecutive weeks, um, taking us all the way into late April, Robert April. Um, but uh, yeah, can't wait for more. So, so ready. Is it Thursday yet? I know we've heard we've heard about some of the behind the scenes stuff plenty of people have heard about some of the behind the scenes stuff i'll say this pete the proof is in the pudding in this episode this all worked whether it's whoever's in charge the director changes to the script non-changes whatever it is commander non it's all good pete this was a heck of an episode it was and if this portends for the rest of the season we're in for a heck of a ride Pete, we are so glad all season long to have, uh, as part of our executive crew, the patrons on patreon.com slash fantasticgeek. They help make our ship go, make it go. Yes, they have afforded us the new uniforms. They're very colorful, so thank you for that. Everybody who contributes at patreon.com slash fantasticgeek gets access to exclusive podcast content and then there's all sorts of levels from there you can go into pete's quarters on the enterprise and see my vulking wedding bells ah so nice pete and uh again thanks to all who help keep us afloat up here in the stars on patreon or by visiting patreon.com slash fantastic geek but of course pete Handling frequencies, luckily those rates have come way down. People can be in touch with you for free. How so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J, Ketelar, K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, uh, 10,303 followers, can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. Don't forget, we love audio feedback, whether it's like Fred sending it in through his magic computer or here in these United States. You can leave a message at 732-707-1815. Pete, it's like the USS Hiawatha. <laughs> Uh, maybe known beforehand. Maybe that's why it takes on the registry, Matt. USS Fantastic Geek just doesn't sound as good. Um, also, remember, too, that not just Star Trek Discovery coming your way from Fantastic Geek on Saturdays during the run here. We're giving you Punisher uh, here in January and February as well. Episode 201 already up for your listening pleasure. Episode 202 coming to you tomorrow, Sunday, January 20th. Well, with that, Pete, as you mentioned, we have stuff going on in the Pop Culture Podcast feed. Next time we talk Star Trek will be next Saturday after episode 202. Can't wait to watch it. Can't wait to discuss it with you all. With that, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. I will say fewer things.